Good afternoon, Tri-States. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped, brought to you in part by DuPaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. This is Ken in my regular Friday reader seat, reading from the Friday, January 13th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Now we have our first piece from Above the Fold. School Voucher Debate Begins. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal to give taxpayer funds to private schools if parents enroll their children there made quick progress in the Iowa legislature this week. The Students' First Act would create an education savings account for students whose parents remove them from a public school and enroll them in a private school. The majority of funding the state would have allocated to the students' public school district would be moved into the account. Based on the current per-student allocation, that would move $7,598 annually with the student. The bill would leave $1,205 to the public school the student previously attended. The state's investment prioritizes students over systems, Molly Severin, the governor's legislative liaison, said Thursday during a Senate subcommittee meeting on the bill. The proposal also would phase in eligibility for education savings accounts for students currently enrolled in private schools, starting with families who have lower income levels. Reynolds announced her proposal during her annual Condition of the State Address Tuesday. By the speech's end, her proposed legislation had been introduced to both the State House of Representatives and Senate. The Senate Education Committee met Wednesday and assigned the bill to a subcommittee that met Thursday. Anyone who has followed state government in Iowa has to know it's an issue that's been in front of us, said Committee Chair Senator Ken Rosenboom, Republican Oskaloosa. This is the sixth or seventh year in a row. The subcommittee meeting drew significant attention. People filled the meeting room 30 minutes prior to the start of the meeting. Would-be participants were asked to form single-file lines out the door, divided by their position on the proposal, and given three minutes each to share input. As many as 300 participants also watched the meeting on Zoom, including educators and other residents from the Dubuque area and from Bellevue. Proponents of the proposal, who referred to it as school choice, included a recent private high school graduate who said his parents' decision to let him enroll in a private school changed his life for the better. A mother said her children had been exposed to values and materials inconsistent with those of her family at school and on the bus. Opponents of the proposal, who call it a school vouchers program, said more than 75% of Iowa schools are in rural communities with no access to private schools close enough to attend. Others said private schools are not required to accept all students who apply, while public schools must educate all students, nor would they be required to do so in the governor's bill. 
Nearly all opponents shared fears that the proposal diverted funding that otherwise would go to public schools. Iowa lawmakers in recent years have increased school funding annually, but at levels lower than the rate of inflation. Rosenboom denied those claims at Thursday's subcommittee meeting, insisting the proposed funding was new money. Our fiscal policies of the last few years, including the tax cuts, have put us in the position where we can do this, he said. The bill would invest $107 million in the Education Savings Account Program. Reynolds also proposed a 2.5% increase in per-student funding for public education, which would equate to an $83 million increase. Committee ranking member Iowa Senator Herman Kornbach, Democrat Ames, an economist, said the bill made up for none of the $501 million in additional funds he said public education would be receiving if state aid increases had kept up with inflation in the past six years. Iowa Senator Pam Yoakum, Democrat Dubuque, said after the subcommittee meeting that giving new funds to private schools was the same as diverting funds away from public schools. They are doing an increase as low as 2.5% in order to pay for these private schools, she said. That's like creating a whole new education system when we don't fully fund the one we already have. Iowa Senator Chris Cornor, Republican Leclerc, is the only area lawmaker who serves on the Senate Education Committee. She was not on the bill's subcommittee, but commented ahead of the meeting on the proposal's weighty price tag. Cornoyer, whose district includes Makokota, also is the vice chair of the Joint Education Appropriations Subcommittee. It is a big ask for sure, said Cornoyer. So we will have to look at the revenues and how this can work. Both Cornoyer and Yoakum said their inboxes quickly had filled with comments on the proposal from educators and parents in the school districts they represent. Members of the Senate subcommittee ultimately voted to advance the bill to the full education committee. The House version of the bill has a public hearing scheduled for Tuesday, January 16th. Our next piece, Veterans, Sexual Assault Alive and Well in Military. And we have with it two large insert pictures of people um, meeting. Uh, looks like perhaps uh, in the... Um, uh, House of Representatives in this case. And the caption beneath the first one reads, Iowa National Guard veterans Don Fleming and Amy Ball are applauded on the floor of the Iowa House of Representatives after being recognized by Iowa Representative Chuck Eisenhardt, Dubuque Democrat. And the other one below that has two of uh, these two women meeting uh, at a table. And there it says, Ball and Fleming discuss their experiences with Major General Ben Carell, Adjutant General of the Iowa National Guard, following Carell's 2023 Condition of the Guard address. And our article reads, Two Dubuque veterans of the Iowa National Guard are battling to increase awareness and services for women like them who experienced sexual assault while serving in the military. <laughs> 
We are not selfish or asking for special treatment, said Amy Ball of Dubuque, while meeting with lawmakers representing Dubuque County on Thursday in Des Moines. We just want the care we were promised, the care that was on the contract. Ball served in the Iowa National Guard from 1996 to 2006, and her service included two tours in Iraq. Dawn Fleming, also of Dubuque, served on active duty from 2004 to 2019, a period that included a tour in Afghanistan. She is now a reserve member as well as child care director at Hills and Dales. On Thursday, Ball and Fleming toured the Iowa State Capitol and watched Major General Ben Carell's 2023 Condition of the Guard address in the House of Representatives chamber, after which they were introduced by Iowa Representative Chuck Eisenhart, Dubuque Democrat, and given a round of applause from the full House. Ball and Fleming also had a mission as members of Tri-State Women Warriors, a group of female veterans who gather to support one another through a number of issues. The pair brought two leading issues to Corral in a private conversation after his address. Military sexual trauma resulting from sexual assault between service members, and the lack of mental health services needed to care for the condition. Leaders need to know this military sexual assault is still happening, Ball said. It didn't go away and has never gotten and has even gotten worse. And they still sweep it under the rug. The offender often doesn't get reprimanded or discharged. Then the victim often, if they do report, They are the ones who end up getting in trouble and getting the assault put on their record. A U.S. Department of Defense report for federal fiscal year 2021 states that 8.4% of surveyed active duty women and 1.5% of surveyed active duty men said they had experienced unwanted sexual contact in the year before being surveyed. After a service member suffers an assault, their military sexual trauma impacts them for the rest of their life, Ball and Fleming said. However, Fleming said many of Iowa's veteran affairs facilities, including the clinic in Dubuque, do not have the necessary capacity to provide mental health treatment for military sexual trauma at the scale at which it exists. They are so understaffed, you are looking at a six-month wait, she said. Mental health providers that are available are tasked with treating trauma that can make speaking to people of certain genders distressing. Men can rape women. Men can rape men. Women can rape men or whatever, Ball said. So some people are not going to want to talk to a male therapist. The Dubuque VA Clinic's website states, Military sexual trauma can happen to both genders. If you experienced sexual assault or harassment during military service, no matter when you served, we provide counseling and treatment. After his conversation with Ball and Fleming, Carell, whose grandparents were from Dubuque and under whom both Ball and Fleming served, said the problems of military sexual trauma and its treatment are complex, but there is help available. They're frustrated because they can't get the health care that they and other women veterans deserve, Carell told the Telegraph Herald. 
but I have resources at my headquarters that can steer them the right way. So I've given them a point of contact. I've seen times when someone had sexual trauma early in their career, but never told anybody and needs care now. So the door is open. If I can get them the help in Dubuque, it can get to others. The Iowa National Guard has a Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Office accessible via the Guard's website for survivors of military sexual trauma to find help. But, Carell said, some of the problems Ball and Fleming discussed fall under the federal VA's purview. It's somewhat VA-challenged, somewhat state-of-Iowa-challenged, he said. I know there have been efforts in the past to open up civilian doctors, but they're just as backed up. Eisenhart serves on the House Veterans Affairs Committee and said the state needs to begin taking responsibility for Iowa National Guard veterans' well-being. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were the first times that I know of that we used state militias to fight international wars, Eisenhart said. Since they are our service members, we should take care of them when they return, not just say, oh, it's the VA or the federal government's responsibility. Iowa Representative Shannon Lundgren, Republican Piasta, serves on the House Health and Human Services Committee and also met with Ball and Fleming on Thursday. She said the two veterans coming to the Capitol and sharing their story had its own power. The more we talk about it, And the more people are used to hearing it, the better, she said. We don't accept sexual assault in the workplace. We can't accept that in our military. Eisenhart said he, Iowa Representative Lindsey James, and Iowa Senator Pam Yoakum, both Dubuque Democrats, were introduced to the Tri-State Women Warriors Group at last year's Veterans Day celebration in Dubuque. That led to those lawmakers meeting Ball and Fleming recently and inviting them to Carell's address. Now our final front page piece. City of Dubuque plans electric vehicle fleet. Dubuque officials hope to replace every city-owned vehicle with an electric-powered alternative by 2045. That goal is part of the Electrification Rationale and Implementation Guidelines recently approved by Dubuque City Council members. The guidelines lay out how the city will approach replacing its vehicles in the future with a priority placed on purchasing electric ones. Under the new guidelines, the city will aim to replace 16% of its vehicles, including city-owned cars, SUVs, pickup trucks, vans, transit buses, and short-haul trucks with electric ones by 2025. By 2032, city officials plan to have nearly half of their fleet comprised of electric vehicles. While swapping out the city's 244 vehicles with electric alternatives in less than 25 years poses a costly challenge for the city, Dubuque Sustainable Community Coordinator Gina Bell said it is feasible. This goal seemed realistic as cars were expected to age out of our fleet, she said. This is a really good way for us to set the example and start moving toward that goal. The new guidelines 
align with the city's plan to reduce the community's carbon emissions by 50% by 2030 compared to 2003 emissions levels. The city's most recent estimates show that emissions created by on-road vehicle travel in the community barely have decreased from 169,881 metric tons of carbon dioxide in 2003 to 167,132 metric tons in 2018. The city's current fleet does not include any electric vehicles. Last year, city staff applied for a $3.4 million federal grant to purchase three electric buses. Though the grant was not approved, city officials still plan to spend up to $1 million to purchase one new electric bus, though it is not expected to hit the streets until spring 2024. Bell said the new guidance doesn't supersede the discretion of department heads who may want to replace city vehicles with a gas-powered option. However, it does impact the city policy that requires departments to prioritize electric vehicles for the fleet replacement when a suitable alternative exists and its life cycle cost is within 10% of the comparable gas-powered vehicles. Under the new guidance, the city must factor in the cost of carbon when deciding on a vehicle replacement. Bell said the cost of carbon will increase the estimated cost of a vehicle by $30 for every metric ton of carbon that vehicle is expected to produce in its lifetime to represent the environmental costs of the purchase. In an example submitted to City Council, a gasoline-powered 2022 Ford Escape was estimated to have a life cycle cost of carbon totaling $1,735, raising its estimated cost from 50493 to $52,228, while the electric version of the same model had a life cycle cost of carbon totaling $465, increasing its total estimated cost to about $51,000. However, the estimate for the electric model also included the anticipated cost of required charging infrastructure, which further increased its estimated cost to $55,143, which still is within 10% of gas-powered vehicles' cost. Mayor Brad Kavanaugh said the new guidelines will help the city meet its goal of converting the city fleet from gas-powered to electric vehicles, but he stressed that the goals established in the new guidance for fully converting the fleet could be subject to change. I do think the goals are reasonable, and I do think those goals could shift depending on the technology, Kavanaugh said. We are going to move toward electrification. It may take us a bit longer than it will take other communities because of our topography and cold weather. Councilmember Susan Farber said including the cost of carbon will help the city better understand the full cost and benefit of switching to electric vehicles. It's important over time to fund and move forward with electric vehicles, she said. I think it's a great rationale.
Now we'll turn to some news from Dubuque and the Tri-States. Our first piece comes out of Platteville. Platteville begins search for new city manager. The search is on for a new Platteville city manager as the current office holder finishes out his tenure this week. Today marks outgoing city manager Adam Ruschel's last day with the city after spending three years in the role. Administration Director Nicola Maurer will assume the position on an interim basis until a permanent replacement is found. It's definitely bittersweet, Ruschel said of his departure, but the goal that I set coming in was that I wanted to leave making sure the city was in a good place and that the next person that came here was in a better position to run it, and I think I was able to accomplish that. Ruschel announced his resignation in November after being recruited for a financial specialist position with Robert W. Baird and Company. He will remain in Platteville through the end of the school year because his wife is a teacher, but the plan is for the family to move to the Green Bay area come summer. The city has tapped recruitment consultant Public Administration Associates to help with the search the same company that assisted with the last city manager search in 2019. A job listing for the role was put on the city website this week, stating all applicants, or applications rather, are due by February 12th. The listing states the incoming city manager will be paid between $115,000 and $135,000 per year, depending upon experience. Whoever assumes the role will take the helm of several major city projects, such as the new fire station, city museum improvements, and long-term financial planning. Common Council President Barbara Douse said Public Administration Associates interviewed council members and staff on what they would like to see from the new city manager, with communication and financial skills topping the list. We're hoping for someone who is collaborative and a good listener, Douse said, and financial skills will be imperative. Under Platteville's government structure, the city manager position is the only city employee hired by the council. The city manager is then responsible for the recruitment and hiring of other city employees. Douse said the council will review applications in mid-February and narrow the list down to semi-finalists and later finalists. Those finalists will then visit Platteville in early March to meet with council members and city residents. When those finalists come to Platteville, we'll have this sort of public meeting that's a lot like speed dating, actually, where the candidates go around and speak and meet with different people, she explained. More information on the position as well as application requirements and details can be found online. I would suggest just looking up uh, Platteville City Council or City Manager. Our next piece is Panel Discusses Gaps in Healthcare Opportunities. We have a large picture of four people sitting uh, in a row speaking to an audience, and the caption reads, Dustin Alfred, community health worker at Crescent Community Health Center, Cassie Foley, health and wellness coordinator at Crescent Community Health Center, Mary Rose Corrigan, public health specialist for the city of Dubuque, 
and Brittany Hubanks, manager at Unity Point Health Visiting Nurse Association, participate in a panel discussion at Steeple Square in Dubuque on Thursday. This was the fourth in a series of community conversations presented by TH Media and Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque. And our article reads, Leaders from Dubuque's healthcare providers put a focus on community engagement during a Thursday panel discussion on addressing and improving health outcomes for residents. Representatives from Unity Point Health, Unity Point Health Visiting Nurse Association, Crescent Community Health Center, Mercy One, and the City of Dubuque took questions from moderators and a number of the roughly 40 attendees at the Steeple Square event, the fourth in a series of community conversations hosted by TH Media and Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque. Metrics shared at the event largely indicated the a decline in health for Dubuque residents, though the overall number of residents with medical insurance increased. Data from the State Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System showed an increase in rates of four major chronic illnesses in Dubuque County from 2014 to 2021, heart disease, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. This was in spite of the fact that many contributing factors to chronic illness, such as binge drinking, smoking, and lack of exercise, had stayed the same or gone down. The exception was the number of overweight people, which increased from 66.7% to 76.4% of respondents over the same period. Panelists emphasized preventive care as key to avoiding chronic illness and maintaining overall well-being, though some noted that the opportunity to access care was not equal among all residents. For people of vulnerable populations, low socioeconomic means, getting a wellness check or going to the dentist is not at the top of the list of priorities, said City of Dubuque Public Health Specialist Mary Rose Corrigan. Insurance data showed that ethnic minorities had higher rates of uninsured residents than white residents, with 31% of Pacific Islanders lacking health insurance in Dubuque compared to 3% of white residents. A running theme among panelists was meeting community members where they are. Brittany Hubanks, manager at the VNA, discussed efforts to add telehealth options for HIV-positive patients amid the shortage of infectious disease specialists in the Dubuque area. Crescent Community Health Center has made multiple efforts in the area of community outreach, particularly for Dubuque's Marshallese population. The Federally Qualified Health Center has procured grants to provide community members with cell phones, rides to medical appointments, and free meal kits to improve nutrition and healthy eating, Crescent Health and Wellness Coordinator Cassie Foley said. The center's efforts also have included hiring Spanish and Marshallese-speaking community health workers. The trust between us and the patient is really big, said Dustin Alfred, a Marshallese-speaking community health worker. Having someone who speaks the language is really big. We can advocate and we can be someone they can trust. 
Now we turn to our opinion page and our view. The quick takes presented from the point of view of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald editorial staff. And today we have three smiley faces. Our first one, honor befits ballplayer Sherman. Plans to honor a local baseball great with the naming of the Farley, Iowa Diamond feels like a grand slam for a man who has made a broad contribution to the area community, both on and off the field. Paul Sherman, the charter president of the Eastern Iowa Hawkeye League semi-pro circuit and a member of Dubuque County Baseball Hall of Fame, will have yet another honor bestowed upon him this summer. The Farley Park Board last week announced plans to name the baseball diamond at the facility Paul Sherman Field in recognition of his lifelong dedication to the sport and the Farley community. Playing professionally might be the dream for a lot of ball players, but it was when Sherman's professional career ended that a lifetime commitment to Dubuque County baseball came into full bloom. That led Sherman to performing in the Field of Dreams movie and becoming a member of the Ghost Players, with whom he traveled the world, not to mention hundreds of local events. It brought him to playing semi-pro ball on the Farley team for decades, as well as managing the team. With that came painstaking and meticulous care of the Farley field and making improvements in every aspect. He even served on the board of directors for the Roberto Clemente Foundation and Roberto's Kids. Meanwhile, Sherman was a respected community leader for his work at the family implement business and serving three terms in the Iowa House of Representatives before retiring from politics in 2002. Sherman says baseball has been good to him. In turn, the community of Farley and indeed the game of baseball is better for the roles that Sherman has played over the years. The naming of Farley Field in his honor is a fitting tribute. Contributions to support the dedication and plaque can be made payable to Paul Sherman Field and dropped off at any Midwest One Bank location. Our second smiley face. An era ended in Iowa this week when Dubuque native Tom Miller left the Attorney General's office. When Miller was first elected Attorney General, Jimmy Carter was president. Three Mile Island was in the news, and there was a brand new game out called Trivial Pursuit. More than four decades later, with one term off when he ran for governor and then joined private practice, Miller leaves office as the longest-serving attorney general in U.S. history. This native son has fond memories of his years growing up in Dubuque, attending St. Comkill Elementary School, Waller Catholic High School, and Loras College, and the community should be proud of him. Miller held the office for 40 years, more than half his life, before being denied an 11th term in November. Over that time, the role of the Attorney General became one of staunch consumer advocate with AGs across the country working together to take on tobacco companies, pharmaceutical giants, and the tech behemoths. Additionally, the Attorney General's office became synonymous with fraud fighting in an era when scams of all sorts skyrocketed. Forty years marks a long time to be in public service and face the scrutiny of elected office. 
As the state turns the page to a new Attorney General in Brenna Byrd, we congratulate Tom Miller on his years of dedication to the state. Our third and final smiley face. Work is well underway to broaden the scope of Dubuque history beyond Julian Dubuque, Chief Piasta, lead mining, and the historic shot tower. While most locals know something about some of Dubuque's historic figures, such as Matthias Ham, Bishop Loris, and Mother Mary Frances Clark, most people would be harder-pressed to talk about what the first black church in Dubuque was like. Few know stories of black neighbors and the folks who populated them, or neighborhoods and the folks who populated them. City officials have begun to unlock some of those hidden stories as work progresses on the historical resource survey of black community life in Dubuque, the first of its kind overseen by the city. City council members heard an update last week on the progress, which already has revealed some eye-opening history. For example, in 1868, the Iowa Supreme Court issued a verdict allowing for the integration of the state's schools, but nearly 10 years after the ruling, they remained segregated in Dubuque. There are lessons of context wrapped in this untold history. Ultimately, the project will include the creation of a heritage database and a record of historically significant figures and sites from the period that begins with Dubuque's incorporation in 1833 to 1980. To learn about Dubuque's cultural history and black heritage will help citizens better understand our society today. This effort to unearth and retell some of our collective story without excluding the contributions of any group will make it a much more vibrant and accurate picture of history. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. This is Ken, and I am reading from the Friday January 13th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. We do have one letter to the editor. Hinson congratulating herself again. From Jean Shaw, Pimlico Way, Epworth, Iowa. For a scientist, a nanosecond is one one billionth of a second. For a comedian, it's the length of time between the traffic light that you are waiting for changes from red to green and when the driver behind you starts honking his horn. Here in Northeast Iowa, it's the length of time between Representative Ashley Hinson posting how she supported us by voting against the comprehensive federal budget and her praising herself for the federal monies coming into our area. Since she received no negative consequences for this dupl duplicious last year, it's no wonder that she did it again this year. It seems that our state motto has become, Our myths we prize and our ignorance we will maintain. We now turn to today's obituaries. Vivian A. Allendorf, Shellsburg, Wisconsin. Vivian A. Allendorf, age 97, of Shellsburg, passed away Tuesday, January 10th at Memorial Hospital of Lafayette County in Darlington. 
She was born January 15, 1925, in New Diggings, Wisconsin, the daughter of Melvin and Viola Wills March. She was united in marriage to John Allendorf on November 6, 1943, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Galena. John preceded Vivian in death on May 18, 2009, after 65 years together. Vivian attended Shellsburg High School and spent her life as a proud homemaker, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and great-great-grandmother. She was an active member of St. Matthew's Catholic Church in Shellsburg and its Council of Catholic Women. She enjoyed being a member of Shellsburg American Legion Auxiliary and the VFW Auxiliary of Benton. Vivian was a regular volunteer with the Shellsburg Blood Drive and enjoyed spending time with friends at the Shellsburg Senior Center. Vivian was talented at crocheting, gifting many Afghan blankets and doilies over the years. She also enjoyed shopping, traveling, puzzles, gardening, bird-watching, crafts, and most of all, spending time with her family and friends. All who knew Vivian were touched by her strong faith, loving care, kindness, positivity, and ability to look years younger than she was. A Mass of Christian Burial will be held Tuesday, January 17th at 11 a.m. at St. Matthew's Catholic Church Gymnasium, 344 North Judgment Street, Shellsburg, with Father Peter Lee officiating. Burial will be in St. Matthew's Cemetery in Shellsburg with a Celebration of Life luncheon to follow at St. Matthew's Gym. A visitation will be held Monday, January 16th from 4 until 8 p.m. at Erickson Funeral Home, 235 North Judgment Street, Shellsburg, with a rosary being prayed at 3.45 p.m. A visitation will also be held Tuesday, January 17th, from 10 a.m. until 10.45 a.m. at St. Matthew's Catholic Church Gymnasium. Online condolences may be expressed to the family at www.ericksonfuneralhome.com. Rodney A. Elgin, Worthington. Rodney Allen Rod Elgin, 52, of Worthington, passed away Thursday, January 12th at his home in rural Worthington, surrounded by his family. Rodney put up a strong four-year fight with stage four cancer. Visitation for Rodney will be held from 12 to 5 p.m. on Saturday, January 14th at the Rife Funeral Home in Dyersville, where the Worthington Fire Department and the surrounding fire departments will meet in a body at 4.30. A celebration of life for Rodney will be announced at a later date. Rodney was born March 23, 1970, in Dubuque, the son of Jerry and Andrea Bildstein Elgin. On August 26, 1995, he was united in marriage to Kathy Tusley at St. Francis Xavier Basilica in Dyersville. Rodney had a great love for nature and being outdoors, hunting pheasants, deer, and coon with his daughters and friends. He enjoyed his yearly getaway ice fishing trip with his friends, riding the side-by-side with his wife, and snowmobiling in the mountains. He was proud of his garden and canning his vegetables. 
Rodney served as a captain on the Worthington Fire Department for over 20 years and was currently president of the Worthington Sportsman Club and a member of St. Paul's Catholic Church in Worthington. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.rifefuneralhomeinc.com. Bonnie M. DeSoto, Dyersville. Bonnie M. DeSoto of Dyersville and formerly of New Vienna passed away Thursday, January 12th at Mercy One Medical Center in Dyersville after a courageous battle with cancer. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Tuesday, January 17th at St. Boniface Catholic Church in New Vienna with a massive Christian burial to follow at 11 a.m. Burial will be in the church cemetery. Reverend Gabriel Mensa will officiate. Bonnie was born on January 25, 1942, in Guttenberg, Iowa, the daughter of Mark and Alice Burns de Sotel, the oldest of eight children. She grew up on a farm north of Luxembourg and later moved to New Vienna. She graduated from St. Boniface High School with the class of 1960 and attended Bayless Business College. She worked at the Ertl Toy Company for 34 years until retirement. Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville is assisting the family and information is available at www.kramerfuneral.com. Joyce E. Mester, Belmont, Wisconsin. Joyce E. Mester, 93, of Belmont, died Tuesday, January 10th. Visitation will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, January 15th at Melby Funeral Home and Crematory and from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Monday, January 16th at Peace Lutheran Church in Belmont where services will follow. Mark P. Brown, Woodman, Wisconsin. Mark P. Brown, 49, of Woodman, died Saturday, January 7th. Visitation will be held from 10 a.m. to noon, Thursday, January 19th, at Boscobel Bowl and Banquet. Larson Family Funeral Home of Fenimore is assisting the family. Arnold Johnson, Galena. Arnold Johnson, 94, of Galena and formerly Chicago, died Wednesday, January 12th. Arrangements are pending. Furlong Funeral Chapel of Galena is assisting the family. Michael J. Burr, Prairie du Chien. Michael J. Burr, 67, of Prairie du Chien, died Tuesday, January 10th. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 19th at Garrity Funeral Home and Chapel in Prairie du Chien. And I'm looking, but I find no listing of births. We don't have any to report for today. I'm sure there are some coming along. There always are. So we remember the new ones that may be coming as we grieve the losses that we experience. I'm going to take a chance and read from the Lifestyles page a piece about an art installation. And I'm reading it especially for any of my listeners who may be... um, blind or visually impaired because it appears this exhibit is one that you may touch. 
So allow me to read the article and invite you to possibly consider going and um, feeling it. Art and the Great Migration is what it's titled. And we have uh, two pictures of the artist. The first one, it shows her on a ladder putting what appear to be black butterflies up on the wall. And it reads, Des Moines-based artist Jill Wells places butterflies on the walls of the Dubuque Museum of Art. Black thread installation opening Sunday, January 15th. And the second picture shows her on the same ladder from a, a longer distance. And you see all kinds of cut out black butterflies on a table. And she is on the ladder still putting them up on the wall. Wells places butterflies again on the walls of the Museum of Art for her Black Threads installation. And the article reads, Between 1910 and 1970, approximately 6 million African Americans relocated from the rural southern United States to the urban northeastern, western, and midwestern states, a journey that came to be known as the Great Migration. It's regarded as one of the largest movements of people in history, and one that hits close to home for Jill Wells, who for years has sought to trace her family's historical roots in Iowa. Her curiosity led her to Ricky King of Roots to Branches Genealogy, who specializes in Iowa historical and ge genealogical records. I had wanted to develop an installation piece that focused on the Great Migration for some time, said Wells, 42, and a Des Moines-based multimedia artist. After meeting with Ricky, so many doors were opened to me in discovering my own family connection to the historical moment in history and time. In looking at ways she could depict it through her artwork, she came to the butterfly which possesses a migratory pattern of its own. It's a symbol of freedom, of fluidity, Wells said. They help tie together this beautiful narrative. Her large-scale immersive exhibition, Black Thread, will open on Sunday, January 15th, at the Dubuque Museum of Art, coinciding with the birthday of Martin Luther King, Jr., and will continue through the museum's Winter Art Snow Sculpting Festival on Sunday, February 12th. It's the inaugural offering of a new Dubuque Museum of Art series that will focus on the work of Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, referred to as BIPOC. A conversation between Wells and King will take place at 1.30 p.m. Sunday at the McCarthy Center for Nonprofit Learning, 700 Locust Street, to introduce the exhibit. An opening celebration will follow from 2.30 to 4 p.m. at the Dubuque Museum of Art, 701 Locust Street, including food from Franny's Barbecue and music by DJ Nita Beat. Using maps of the Great Migration to develop the shape of the piece, Wells thoughtfully has depicted the event through the use of more than 4,000 black butterflies in three varying sizes. 
made from a flexible plastic, they trace their journey within the lobby of the museum, traveling along the architecture of its curved walls and ceiling and converging upon a black 1958 Kenmore sewing machine once belonging to Wells's maternal grandmother. There's a nod there to the U.S. economy and the transformation between working in the fields in the South to the industrial labor taking place in the North, Wells said. There's also a depiction of black awareness toward women and the part they played outside of their domestic role. As the butterflies continue on their way, they intertwine to form an African-American flag, as well as a black and white American flag, depicting the sewing of the fabric of America from Africa-Americans throughout history. Growing up in Indianola, Iowa, Wells' interest in art developed through her grandmother, who also was an artist. She would gather with a group of women in the basement of her home, surrounded by easels as each would put paint to canvas. Wells began her artistic expression in watercolor before her studies at Drake University led her to oils and other mediums. Her work has since been recognized for blending art with advocacy, often exploring topics of race, history, stereotypes, accessibility, and the human experience. It's an area in which she has a keen and sensitive understanding. From 2012 to 2015, Wells was a substance abuse use activities specialist, and in 2015, she became certified as an alcohol and substance use counselor. In 2020, Wells founded Artists X Advocacy Mentorship Program. For her work in 2021, Wells was awarded the Iowa Arts and Culture Resilience Grant and additionally served as a TEDx speaker about the power of public art. It's something I take very seriously and feel a great sense of responsibility, energy, and excitement toward, Wells said. I'm a very curious person and have always been interested in storytelling. I think it is my natural way of being able to narrate my work as a statement and also a way to create an opportunity for people to look beyond the beauty and to learn. Art is tied to everything we do and is a great educational tool. With inclusivity at its core, visitors are permitted to touch ground-level artwork within the Black Thread exhibition, which also includes custom Braille created by the Iowa Department for the Blind. It might be the first exhibit where touching the art is encouraged, said Stacy Peterson, Dubuque Museum of Art Curator and Registrar. In this case, it's a part of the immersive experience, and we're always exploring ways to become to come more accessible in providing an artistic experience to those who might not be able to see the art. QR codes with audio descriptions also will be available throughout the exhibition and via dbqart.org courtesy of Iowa Radio Reading Information Services. That's us, Iris. For those able to see it, Peterson noted that the piece also has the capability to offer different perspectives depending upon where it is viewed. 
It's so unique, she said. It's almost like a mural in that people will be able to walk by and see it from the windows in the front of the building. And depending on the time of day, it will take on a different view through the shadows of the butterfly wings. Although well-established, the exhibition marks Wells's first in Dubuque after coming to the attention of Anderson Senshi, director of the City of Dubuque's Office of Shared Prosperity and Neighborhood Support, and a board member for the Dubuque Museum of Art. I am so looking forward to getting to know other people from the artistic community in Dubuque, Wells said. I'm also excited for people to learn about this important moment of not only my past, but of Iowa's story in the Great Migration and its Black history. So I want to really, really recommend that you consider going to see this exhibit. And let me read the inset box. We'll give you some more of the times and such. The event is Black Thread. It's from Sunday, January 15th. At 1.30 p.m., an artist talk with Jill Wells and Ricky King. From 2.30 to 4 p.m., opening celebration. Exhibit will continue through Sunday, February 12th. The talks are at the McCarthy Center for Nonprofit Learning, 700 Locust Street, for the artist talk. And the Dubuque Museum of Art is 701 Locust Street for the opening celebration. The cost, free. Got that? It's free. So online, if you have someone who wants to give you more information, dbqart.org. Again, let me urge my listeners, this is an exhibit that's designed with you in mind. And I think it's something you should take wonderful advantage of. Just looking at the picture makes it just exciting to go and see what is this all about? Butterflies everywhere. I intend to be there at some point. I hope many of you have the chance to go as well. Remember what I read? Parts of this are also in Braille, and you can touch many pieces of it. So I think this is an exhibit designed with uh, my uh, sight impaired, my blind readers. So please, take advantage. Now we do have a little bit of news in brief. Jackson County man threatened wife with gun before house burned. Authorities said a Jackson County man threatened his wife with a gun before running into another room and firing it. A subsequent fire destroyed their residence and damaged a nearby vehicle. Tyler D. Yeager, 31, of rural Dumokokota, is charged in Iowa District Court of Jackson County with intimidation with a dangerous weapon, going armed with intent, first-degree harassment, domestic assault, and reckless use of firearms. His next court hearing is set for Friday, January 20th. Documents state that at about 5.30 p.m. December 26th, Yeager pointed a gun at his wife, Autumn Yeager, at their residence and threatened to kill her and himself. Yeager then ran into another room and fired the gun while his wife was still inside the house and their minor children were outside of the house in a vehicle nearby. Authorities, man led law enforcement on chase in and around Dubuque. Everett E. Winfrey of Dubuque was arrested on charges of eluding, operating while intoxicated, and multiple traffic violations, as well as warrants charging, probation violation, controlled substance violation, and escape, according to a press release from Dubuque County Sheriff's Department. The release states that a deputy tried to make a traffic stop 
on a vehicle being driven by Winfrey shortly before 1.30 p.m. Thursday on Seipel Road near Airborne Road. Winfrey led the deputy on a pursuit which went on the southwest arterial, English Mill Road, Crescent Ridge, Fremont Avenue, and through neighborhoods in the South Grandview Avenue area before stop sticks successfully were deployed, the release states. Local group honored for effort to rename the Dubuque Regional Mains Airport. The Dubuque branch of the NAACP and Captain Robert L. Martin Commemoration Committee are receiving an MLK Service Project Award from Iowa Department of Human Service Rights Office on the status of American African Americans. The group will be honored at the office's celebration honoring the life of Martin Luther King Jr., which will be held at 10.45 a.m. Monday, January 16th. The NAACP branch and committee are being recognized for the role they played in naming the Captain Robert L. Martin Terminal at Dubuque Regional Airport. Martin, a native of Dubuque, was one of the first black aviators to fly for the U.S. military during World War II. He was a member of the Tuskegee Airmen and was awarded several medals for his service, including the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Purple Heart. Also being honored at Monday's celebration is Sanvi Ram, a 10th grader at Hempstead High School in Dubuque, for a poem she submitted in the Call to Serve Youth Contest entitled America 1865. Now we have our weekend buzz. The notable things to do this weekend. We have Flashback Friday Dance. Today, Dubuque County Fairgrounds, 7 to 11, WJOD will present a night of dancing with music from 1990 to 2005. All ages welcome. Admission, $5 per person. For more information on the event, go to dbqfair.com. Well, that wraps it up for Friday, January 13th, and the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald by... Yours truly, Ken, in the Friday Reader Seat. Remember, this is brought to you by IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap, which offers you lots and lots of stuff besides just our wonderful voices reading the newspaper. So check it out. Go to our IRIS websites and see what you can find out. Right? Until next Friday, take care.